0: Well, I'll just go since to get the conversation started. I uh, don't have pressing question, but um, I've been uh, not as rigid in doing TMI. I think since the past couple of weeks, I was trying out some different uh, um, what's it Shinzen Young exercises and. Uh, Some sits, I just did a full hour of uh, a guided forgiveness and then a guided uh, loving kindness meditation um, from Bonte Villaranzi, he has both of those and I just did one right after the other. Um, And it was nice, I think uh, um, just trying out something different was nice to do once in a while. Um, I noticed actually something yesterday, that after doing some more forgiveness over the past couple of weeks um kind of an old event with a with a friend that used to just be something I'm like i can't ever i can't forgive that it's not anything that i don't even want to think about i noticed uh, yesterday when i was doing the forgiveness meditation it didn't come up and i hadn't really actually thought about my friend in like a day or two which is kind of odd and then when it did come up it was, kind of felt like uh, there was a detachment from it. It just felt like it was more of a neutral event rather than a, a emotional, emotionally attached event. Um, and it was really cool to to notice that um, because I didn't notice anything specifically happening when I was doing the forgiveness meditation. I remember maybe like a couple of weeks ago, really thinking about the event, wishing I could forgive it, and doing some forgiveness meditation, but nothing. Immediate. It just kind of happened a little bit, either in the background or I was working through it, and it just kind of dissolved itself away. Um, so that was nice.
1: You're muted, Ted. I so I am
2: moving. How do you tell? Never mind. <laughs> There's an old joke about politicians. Um, so, uh, yeah. So that's that's cool. Thanks for sharing that. Um, I I actually uh, have been thinking of bringing something up here, which I don't know how many people really would care about this or benefit from it. But um, I occasionally get opportunities to run finders courses. Um, I, I don't, you know, the finders course isn't my course, but I sort of host it, um, provide the support for people who want to join. And if anybody's interested in doing that, um, there's another one coming up at the beginning of October. So, Hey Ken.
3: Um, This is something that I've been curious about, Ted, Mm -hmm. the finders course. I don't don't know so much about it. And when I saw it, I kind of thought, oh, I hate it when people charge so much for stuff that's like thousands of years old and it's online right yeah. but then I see that people that I trust seem to have really benefited from it I'd love to just hear a little bit more um, about your thoughts on it or about like is there are there other things like finders that aren't so expensive
2: oh, well so so when I host it uh, it's not so expensive but um, that's one thing to say about that but uh, you know the thing about the thing about expensive is it's like one of the things that, that uh, I have learned kind of the hard way um, over the course of the last 20 years of studying Dharma is that um, what's written down isn't actually all that useful, right? I mean, I'm not saying it's used less. It, it's certainly useful, but um, it's not enough. You need uh, a sangha. You need people to have conversations with And ideally you need someone who knows more about it than you do. Like they might not know everything and they might not even be right about everything, but somebody who's just like able to, um, to give you some experiential advice that is not um, just sort of, uh, you know, what the dogma is because there's a really strong tendency. I mean, I, I actually, like i will I will uh, delete people's posts on the TMI subreddit if they post dogma because I think it's actually harmful. I don't think there's anything wrong with studying the dogma, but the point of studying the dogma is to learn what the dogma is pointing to, not to memorize the dogma and assume that that's the literal truth um, and It's really common for people to do the literal truth thing um, so uh so that's kind of a long way of of saying. Uh, you know, I don't know if charging 2,500 bucks for finder's course is uh, a good value proposition. It's really kind of up to you whether that's worth it. When Andrew and I did the finder's course, um, I think it was slightly less than that. I think it was like 2000 might've even been 1000, I don't no, know, two, two. yeah. <laughs> okay. Two. Um, but I had been studying Dharma for like 15 or 18 years at that point. And, um, I hadn't really been able to get any kind of, any of the realizations that my Dharma teachers had told me I could get, right? And they, like, I really wanted to have that happen. Um, And I had spent way more than, you know, $4,000, Andrea and me together had spent way way more than $4,000 just supporting our teachers. So, sorry? Study. Oh, yeah, and just our general expenses. We studied like, yeah, we, we spent quite a bit of money buying a, a trailer so that we could live on the on the uh, the land where uh, where the teachings were happening. Um, so, you know, like 2500 bucks to, to us was just like a pittance. I mean, it was, you know, yes, it's a lot of money, but I mean, we had dedicated many years of our lives to this at, at that point. And so it was kind of a no-brainer. It's like, well, you know, maybe this will work, maybe it won't, but 2,500 bucks, 2,000 bucks. I think it was 2,000 bucks is just not in the grand scheme of things, that much money. Now we're fairly fortunate. Not everybody's that fortunate. So, uh, you know, that's,
3: I guess. Yeah. I mean, I guess it comes from my suspicion in general when people charge what seem like high amounts for things that like, I'm not against people earning money from this, but it's, it's more like I'd be, I'd be happy to pay. It made me trust the guy less that runs it. You know what I mean? Like this yeah. big marketing website that doesn't really say much detail. And so thanks for talking a little bit about it because basically kind of just from hearing you talk about it or write about it online, it made me consider it more um, yeah. because I don't, I don't know anyone in person who's, who's actually done it, but I've kind of read good stuff.
4: Yeah. I also, sorry, uh, I want to say something about this after you. Yeah. Oh, I was just going to say
2: one of the things that, that, that um, you yeah, know, so I've taken quite a few online, well, not quite a few, but a fair number of online courses. I took the Alt MBA and that was about two grand, $2,400, I think. Um, and actually the amount of content that I got for the $2,000 for the finders course was quite a bit more than that. So, you know, if you compare it to like, like if you took a semester at college, you know, it's probably less than that. So, so I'm it's... I'm from
3: Ireland, so... <laughs> well, yeah. Sorry.
2: But, you know, then, then let's not get into the whole state religion thing. <laughs> so, Rip, you wanted to say something.
4: Yeah, I actually think this is a really super fascinating topic. And in general, I actually think that, um... Not even about the finder's course in particular, but I think that um, prices and your reaction to prices is actually an amazing meditation topic. Uh, just to notice like how it makes you feel, and like notice like whether that's coming from inside you or whether it's something external, and to think about how pricing is actually like a weird science. Like pricing is designed in some ways by like treating human beings as a machine and like understanding that they're mechanical. Um, So for instance, in many cases, if something is priced higher, people think it's more valuable, even if it's the same thing. And then in some cases, if the price gets too high, then you start to think it's a scam, even if it's the same thing. But that's all kind of like weirdly made up and like super interesting. So I actually have found that for myself, I get a lot of um, interesting insights by thinking about prices. And, you know, I definitely like I live in Silicon Valley, where like, that amount of money for something really helpful. Like I think if you priced it less people wouldn't take it seriously and they wouldn't do the work. Um, and so you can think that it's like kind of price maybe for a different culture or a different um, Set of values, but I think it's really interesting to kind of look at your own reaction to that. And um, I guess I have just found that really fascinating in the last few months. I've encountered some things that were Priced very, very differently from what I expected. And I got a lot of mileage out of examining my reactions to that. Sure.
2: Really good point, Griff, because actually one of the things that Jeffrey has observed is that if you give the, and he tried this, he, he tried giving the course away for free, people didn't finish it. That's been my experience too. I When I do the course and I do it for free, um, the number of people that drop out is significant. It's not everybody. Um, in my case, you know, I exact a promise up front, I want everybody to stay. But even with that promise, several people dropped out last time. So we had like, I think six people going in, four people came out, you know, this is like, I'm giving away this thing for free and they don't even show up. So, uh, yeah. So, and, 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 you know, Jeffrey's experience was that if you pay the $2,000, by God, you're going to finish the damn course. Cause that was a lot of money. <laughs> so anyway, uh, so Nate, I think had his hand up and then
5: Yeah. Do you also do the Explorers course then?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that was very valuable. Like, like I would definitely recommend that for even for, like, if you've, if you've had your success in the fi- in, in TMI and you don't need like to become a finder, um, you don't really need to take the finders course. Although I actually think the finders course is still quite useful. But um, definitely the Explorers course is, is, there's a lot of good stuff about integration in the Explorers course. Right, I, I also,
5: I guess I meant like, do you um, host the session? Do I host
2: like? it? No, um, but I think that the, you can get access to the Explorers course, uh, it's quite a bit cheaper. Um, and, you know, so.
5: Yeah, so, so they, I looked into it a little bit ago because they opened it up to everyone. For, for like, I think just one, um, one of them. And I don't know, I watched the videos and I think the content was good, but like, I don't know, this, this might be just my personal feeling, but like he rambles on a little bit. What's like 16 minutes could really be like three minutes. Oh yeah. And then, yeah. And then, then at the very end, he, it sounded like he was trying to sell me some, some something like uh, he was talking about this, like a uh, supplement that he took that put him into location for it, and that well, whole thing just like yeah. weirded me out.
2: Yeah. He's, he's like, so Jeff, one of the things to know about Jeffrey is that he's really into shortcuts. So it's not that he wants you to buy the thing cause he's going to make money cause he's not like, he doesn't, he doesn't make any money off of that supplement as far as I know I could be wrong, but, um, he just, it's like, wow, I can just take this pill and I'm in location four. <laughs> so, you know, whatever. Um, I mean, you could probably do that with ecstasy too, but uh, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's something you want to do every day. Um, so my experience with that stuff is is like, yeah, I hear Jeffrey t- talking about it. Basically, I think part of the benefit of having gone through the finder's course actually is that I kind of know where Jeffrey's bullshit is. And so like when he's talking about, um, you know, like, like taking this weird supplement that's supposed to make my brain function differently, I'm like, well, okay, you know, he likes shortcuts. Maybe that is a good shortcut. I know other people who have taken the finder's course who, also use that supplement and swear by it. But to me, it's just like, you know, (laughs) it just seems weird. But, but the other stuff, the, the, the advice that he gives particularly about, you know, based in behaviorism and stuff like that, I found really useful and like practically useful. And if you hear me giving advice um, a lot of the advice that I give about integration actually comes from the explorers course. I mean, I've obviously developed my own take on it, but, but that's that's part of my lineage and it's uh, it's a very important part of my lineage. So, you know, for what it's worth.
5: Cool. Well, um, what, well, one final thing is like, do you, do you have any clue why, like you said, like other practices didn't really work for you, but then the funders course did cause like, uh, um, yeah, yes, go ahead.
2: So, um, I think, Essentially, every wake, every awakening practice is a hack. This is my theory. I'm not saying this is true, but this is my theory. Every awakening practice is a hack, including TMI. Um, TMI tries to get you to entrain your attention so that your awareness will become more um, broad and all-encompassing, and you'll develop this mindfulness that will allow you to have insight. But the insight itself is not caused by the meditation practice. The meditation practice just creates a context in which you're able to have the insight. And uh, so the practice that I did that worked for me um, had essentially that same effect, right? It was it was a, uh, it was was a an awareness noting practice and the effect of the awareness noting practice was to put me into a state that felt very much like what Chuladasa describes as shamatha. So, or samatha, I guess he calls it. Um, so, and uh, and yet I wasn't able to do that with TMI, right? I had not gotten to the point, you know, maybe if I continued with TMI, I eventually would have. But um, the question you have to ask yourself is like, what's more important to me? Like having the practice that I picked work or having a practice work? And if it's having a practice work, then, then you know, Jeffrey's philosophy makes sense, which is just try a ton of practices and see which one works. Don't worry about, like, why it works or, you know, like, which practice is better than which other practice or something like that. Just, like, you know, find a hammer and bang on the pipe. And then if that hammer doesn't work, find another hammer and use that one to bang on the pipe. And keep banging on the pipe until the right kind of sound comes out. And unfortunately, that's the level of understanding we have, really. I mean, I could theorize. And, and you know, my experience doing the various practices was that I saw commonalities between them. It does seem like, for example, there's, uh, there are practices that are generally focused on attention and there are practices that are generally focused on awareness. And so for some people, practices that are generally focused on awareness work really well, and attention-focused practices don't. For other people, attention-focused practices work really well, and awareness-focused practices don't work so well. So I don't know why that is, you know, brain anatomy or, you know, nature versus nurture, <laughs> You know, it it would be really interesting to develop a scientific approach to this where we actually were able to answer those questions, but as far as I know, we're not able to answer them right now. So, that was kind of long-winded, but...
4: I have a little bit of a follow-up question, though. Yeah. Can I ask a follow-up? Yeah. Yeah. So, I guess to me, one interesting question about that, though, is uh, I feel like Tucker and some others have also said, like, lots of different techniques should work but actually like it takes quite a long time to figure out if a technique is working for you. And so, you know, you should try something for like a few months or a year, Um, but your experience instead has been like the finder's course, which I guess gives you like a new technique every week. Like is a a week enough time to figure out if something is working, is I guess a question I would ask about.
2: Right, so yeah, so, well, if it works, it's certainly enough time, right? <laughs> if it works
4: fast, it's enough time.
2: <laughs> it... yeah. And yeah, so, so Jeffrey, Jeffrey actually thought the same thing when he went in, like when he, when he did the finders course, when he developed the, the protocol, cause it's essentially an experimental protocol, right? When he right. developed the protocol, his theory was go through try all you know, 13 or 17 or however many of his practices, see which one feels like it's like juiciest for you. And then after the course is over, go back and do that one until it works. Except it turned out that like five out of the six people that took the first that did the protocol the first time had some kind of transition during the 17 weeks. So that was when he was like, oh, okay, well maybe this is fast. And actually, when he went back and and did a little bit more thinking about the data that he gathered, he found that actually it was very common for somebody to uh, show up, get a practice, start doing it, and have a transition very quickly. There basically there were several different. Uh, ways that it could go. One was that. The other is you show up, you do the practice for like your whole life and you never get a result. And like, why not? Well, who knows? Um, but that's, you know, that's a good indication that you shouldn't just try to do one practice for the whole, for your whole life because it's an awesome practice. And of course it will work because maybe it won't. Um, the other thing he found is that occasionally someone will do the practice for years and years and years and years. And then suddenly one day it works. And, his conjecture about that, which I don't think is proven, and I'm not even sure is provable, is that what happened is that you changed enough that the practice was now able to work for you.: um, and, Yeah, that makes you know, sense it's, it's plausible. I don't know if it's true, but it's certainly plausible.
4: Yeah.
2: Um, yeah, so so anyway, the bottom line is it's like it's kind of harmless to try. like if you spend a week on a practice and it produces a transition, well, awesome. And if it doesn't, you know you didn't lose much, you only spent a week on it. And if you get through to the end of the finder's course, uh, my experience has been practically everybody who goes through the finder's course, whether they have a transition or not, does have some practice that really seemed like it was good for them. And then you just continue doing that after the course and hopefully that produces a transition relatively quickly. But, you know, my personal data on this is a little bit spotty because People tend to wander off after the course is over, and right. then I don't get a lot of follow-up.
1: So. Well, and I, I think there's, uh, I mean, there, there's a danger I think in this in the 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 seeing awakening as as mm-hmm. like you looking for the right technique to hack sort of uh you know hack your mind so to speak, and and there's it's like almost like a key right, and different keys work for different people. Um, to me, it makes more sense to see it, see it as like just, it's a paradigm shift, right? And so what does it take for you to have that paradigm shift that, aha, you know, it's kind of the realization like, oh, somehow things click in a new way, right? And yeah, so there's that element. There's that the waking up. Where's that pair? When does that paradigm shift ha- happen? The other question, I think this, this is all happening within the context of cultivation. Right. And, and why would a person sort of continue this practice for years and years and years if they weren't having benefits and cultivating qualities? Right. And and I'm, I think sometimes we can put a little bit too much emphasis just on that, the awakening, um, which is good. Right. I mean, it's good to have things like the finers course, but like to not go too far with that. Right. Like, oh, yeah, I got to get to that, that, you know, that that paradigm shift and until i get there then nothing else matters right and that's you know you get there and and what do people do they i mean pretty much they they all keep practicing right because then they they see the value in keeping on practicing
2: yeah i mean the other thing about that is that is that like you know the awakening is not the whole practice As, as i think we've we've all learned kind of the hard way recently right awakening is not everything awakening is a part of it awakening is Gives you some nice. uh, It gives you a nice platform from which to practice, but you also have to grow up. (laughs) And you know, ideally, like you know, you could argue that that um, a, a rapid awakening practice, something that gets you awakened very quickly, might not even be ideal. It might be good to have a little bit of time to spend setting your intentions before you have the awakening so that when you have the awakening, you don't wind up just like turning into a lotus eater or something, because that's a thing, right? You know, you see people who have some kind of awakening and then they just uh, spend the rest of their lives enjoying being awakened. And like, you know, I wouldn't say that that's a bad thing, but, um, you know, for a lot of us, when we start practicing Dharma, our aspirations are a little higher than that. and. I think yeah. Oh, of-
5: I, I also think like, I don't know. I, I haven't talked to a lot of people from different traditions, but I think especially for finer course, like I'm, I used to be pretty skeptical of it, but now I'm convinced I've, I've met enough people to be convinced that it actually works, but it almost feels like, I don't know. It's like, um, this sudden thing could be like a little bit too sudden. And it's, it's like, when you talk about like growing up or like cleaning up it, it almost feels like certain things just get buried. And it, it like, uh, that was one part that was sort of just like a little bit shocking to me. Like if you do like TMI or something like that, I feel like, um, you, you need to do your purifications. You, at some point you need to do them, you need to face them. And for people that go through the final course, I almost feel like boom, their mind just like snapped in another state. And then like, they could be pretty confused, like they're in a much better state, but like their mind could still be like pretty confused. And some stuff just seems to be like, out of their axis. like, I don't know. Yeah,
2: Yeah. I mean, what happens is that you're no longer suffering in the same way that you were. And so uh, you might have quite a bit of buried conditioning, that's just not being triggered very much anymore, if at all. Um, And when it is triggered, it kind of blindsides you because you weren't expecting it. Cause you're like, Oh, my life is great. Everything is wonderful. And then suddenly like, bam, you get hit in the face with some stupid conditioning that you developed when you were five that, that you'd forgotten about, but something managed to trigger it. And you're like, wait, what happened? Ah! you know, and it actually like my first, you know, cause I had the same experience, right? I, th- I think even if you do TMI, you still wind up with that. It's not like, you know, it's not like TMI makes you perfect. It, it, it the, the purifications you get through in TMI are good. And it's probably better to have those than not before you have an awakening. But uh, even if you have all those purifications, there's still plenty left to do. Um, I think pretty much universally, I, I could be wrong about that, but I haven't seen any evidence to suggest that I am. Um, and it seems like there's a fair amount of agreement about that. So anyway, the bottom line is that, that um, yeah, you, you get, uh, you you still have triggers, you still have conditioning. If you land in a location where you're completely uh, devoid of suffering, that conditioning is just going to be sitting there. It's you're, it's not going to you're not going to be able to dig it up unless you specifically go looking for it. And it may actually be active even though it's not causing you suffering. And so you know you might have conditioning that causes you to be kind of an asshole, and and it's really and it's going off all the time, and you're being kind of an asshole all the time, but you don't mind that people hate your guts. So you're fine. Right. Well, maybe not so much. So, I mean, I think, you know, when, like, when I look at like the Dharma and how it's, how it's evolves, it seems really clear to me that, that we are not the first people to discover this phenomenon. <laughs> and, and part of the reason why there's all of the stuff in, in, in the Dharma teachings about virtue and about, you know, um, helping others, bodhi, Bodhisattva intention, stuff like that, is because if you don't have that stuff going in, you're just not going to do the work. And you might wind up being like kind of, you know, one of those people who's sort of like privileged, but not, you know, like you're privileged in the sense that you're not suffering, but you're not contributing in any, you know, like, like you've had this wonderful thing happen to you and you're not sharing it with anyone. You're not making other people's lives better. In fact, you might even be making other people's lives quite a bit worse. And that's a really bad outcome, I think.
5: Yeah, I think that's very interesting, like, normally, like, for most type of practices, it's, like, embedded in a tradition or, like, some worldview or some ethical framework, even though, like, there, some stuff right now could be pretty secularized. Um, but I also wonder about, like, Finder's Course, like, it's like a whole hodgepodge of different practices and traditions, so I don't know if they they try to carry that around.
2: You mean the traditions or the, the, uh, ethical frameworks? Yeah. The
5: ethical framework, the the tradition, all those things.
2: Not even a little bit. That's, I mean, I've actually talked to Jeffrey about this and, um, he just doesn't feel like it's something he needs to emphasize. So, you know, that is a problematic aspect of the finders course. If I were going to start a lineage (laughs) that was based on the finders course, I would definitely want to fold in some, some, uh, some prep work to get people, you know, primed to move in a, in a positive direction after they've had their awakening and not just like either become sort of static. Like, you know, some people just like, because they're not suffering anymore, they don't do anything. You know, they're perfectly happy to just live in the woods. I mean, literally some, sometimes people do that. They just go and live in the woods cause like they don't care. You know, they don't care how long they live. They don't care how their health is. They don't care whether they're getting a solid meal every day. Um, they don't care if they get to see anybody else. Um, and you know, that's that's not really an ideal outcome. I don't, I mean, who am I to say, right? You know, if somebody wants to do that again, it's fine, but but it doesn't seem like, like that's not the direction that I would advise people to go if I were teaching them.
5: Right, it's it's almost as if like, I mean, like before, normally for most traditions before your awakening or whatever you have, you're embedded in that framework. and. I mean, that's sort of how you make sense of all those experiences and those insights and whatever. Like, um, you could have a Buddhist and uh, a Catholic having the same experience, but they're going to interpret it in, like, very different ways. And, like, I don't know. I feel like without a framework, it just – it's sort of just, like, random. Like, oh, whatever your mindset was coming into it. Like, and and, and, I don't know. I don't know if people even consciously decide what their mindset is, and they just sort of, boop, things happen, and just – Continue going downstream, whatever way they're going.
2: Yeah, one interesting thing about it is that um, it seems like a lot of people who come out of the Finders Course really want to have conversations about this. So, so the the curiosity is not lost, but they're, you know, they're like there's this one guy who's a Finders Course graduate who basically makes a fetish of being kind of an asshole. Um, he considers it to be like good to be an asshole because like he's getting through people's bullshit, and you know, who am I to say that he's wrong, but I personally don't find it all that useful. (laughs) So, yeah, it's, it's, this is, I I think that like, if, if you wanted to do some research on this topic or, you know, some, some writing on this topic, I think it's a very, very deep topic with a lot, there's a lot of value to be had in, in people thinking about this and writing about it. Um, and exchanging ideas because I think you know the, the, the problem that we have right now is that a lot of the, the sort of ancient traditions have sufficient baggage in them that it's difficult for people to accept them and so they tend to reject them out of hand. Um, and then they're left with nothing. And, and I think that's where the finder's course is right now. The reason why the finder's course doesn't have a clear ethical framework is because it's not clear what ethical framework it should have. And you know, like I can talk, all, I can talk at length about Buddhist ethics, and I can talk at length about the Bodhisattva tradition. But um, if I were going to try and teach those things, I don't think that I could teach them from the material that I learned them from. And we don't really have the replacement material that, that's sort of that that would connect with a Western audience in a way that that wouldn't turn them off. Like it wouldn't sort of turn into this big morality thing and this big judgment thing and all kinds of stuff that I don't think are uh, that tend to drive people away. That tend to turn people off unnecessarily. So, yeah, I think there's a lot of work to be done here. So, Tom, you've had your hand up for quite a while. I think uh, you should probably go now.
6: Okay. Uh, I've been enjoying listening to the talk about the finders course. And in fact, that's what my question was about. Uh, uh, when you've talked about it in the past, you've mentioned that when you host it, it's not it, there's a discount, but it hasn't been clear what the discount is. Um, so my first thought was it would be helpful to have a dedicated meeting to talk about it, but that seems to be what this is turning into. Um, so it would be useful to know what the discount would be. You know, have a firm amount that we
2: could out on Um, so um, this is a slightly sticky topic to discuss on a recording
6: yeah um, you want to turn the recording off
2: uh, well yeah I suppose that's a good point I could do that pause (laughs) oops Um, so a couple things about that one um, I don't have any way of predicting when I can run the course, because it's not up to me, it's up to Jeffrey. So um, so that's a bit of an issue. Um, and that doesn't mean that it won't happen again. I'm actually not sure it's gonna happen in October. I still haven't, I haven't actually asked Jeffrey because I don't have anybody clamoring to do it. So, uh, but my understanding is that there will be an opportunity in October. Whether op- opportunities will continue indefinitely is anybody's guess, and I uh, wouldn't count on it. Uh, so that's one thing. Another thing is that, um, in the, uh, in the practice, um, Jeffrey uses, uh, Goenka style meditation. That's the very first thing you start doing. You do that for two weeks before you do anything else. Um, and TMI is not entirely unlike Goenka. It's not the same as Goenka, but it's very similar. So, uh, for me, when I was doing the practice, um, I actually did TMI practice a lot um, instead of Goenka practice. Not instead of in the sense of like ignoring the Goenka practice, but just like the Goenka practice was so much like the TMI practice that I wound up just doing the TMI practice, and that was mostly fine. Um, so, and you can continue to do the TMI practice all the way through the course. Um, there were a few periods during the course when I actually discontinued TMI practice temporarily because I just didn't have enough time to do TMI plus the other thing, which was very fruitful. But uh, those were rare occasions. Um, like, I think that might've been two weeks out of the whole course. So um, if you have, if, if you're really constrained on time, you might not be able to make that work. Um, but my experience of it was that I really wanted to continue doing Anapanasati meditation the whole, the whole way through the course. And, uh, the times when I didn't, it was just because I didn't have time, not because, you know, so the other thing to the other thing to say about this is like, you know, if you go through the course and you do all of the practices and you come out the other side and none of it worked, TMI is still there. Right. So, um, but if you don't do the course, you'll never find out if any of the practices work. So, the problem is, it's impossible to predict. Like, oh, my TMI practice is going to produce a result at this time, right? You don't know. Um, but the good news is, your TMI practice, at least in my in my personal experience, um, it really does feed into the course. Like, like the fact that you're doing TMI meditation will mean that the course will be very accessible for you. You'll find a lot of the practices to be uh, very doable. Um, so. Okay. Yeah, that's, that's
0: I, helpful. I'm going to give it some thought. Okay,
2: okay cool. All right. Uh, let's see. So we have Riff and then, uh,
4: Laura, You guys are both gone. So Yeah. My question is in no way finders course related so there's any more finders with course related questions. We could take those first and come back to me.
2: Laura I think oh.
4: you. You go ahead. Go ahead, Riff. Okay. I mean, my my topic is also. I mean, it's also a topic change. So, um. Yeah, I guess I was curious to ask about the um, if you had any opinion or advice on um. The three characteristics of um, impermanence and uh, unsatisfactoriness and no self. I've been really interested in this advice. It shows up in you know uh, Rob Berbia's book, but also in MCTB to kind of like really try to observe those. And I feel like I may be at a stage of my TMI practice where that could potentially be fruitful. And what I think I'm finding so far is that, um, I feel like impermanence feels pretty easy for me to see like, yeah, sure. Everything's impermanent. And like, I notice something and then I notice it's not there anymore. And that happens for external events and internal events at different timescales. Um, unsatisfactoriness for me feels very hard to access. Like, I usually feel like I look inside and I'm like, actually when I look closely at things, they seem pretty satisfactory to me. Like I don't have this often like deep undercurrent of things are not satisfactory. And no self is the trickiest. I feel like intellectually I can tell myself I have that and that feels comfortable. Like it doesn't feel disturbing to me, but I don't, I don't necessarily feel like I really access it. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that or any advice. So I would
2: look for the effects of no self rather than trying to look for an intellectual understanding of no self because no self is not the absence of a self really. Right. It's the absence of a certain kind of self. And so if you're, if you're just looking for no self in the sense of nothing there, um, I mean that people have that experience. I'm not saying they don't, and I'm not saying it's not a valid experience, but that's not the only way to experience it. Um, so, uh, Personally, and, and again, don't try to model your behavior on this because it really does seem to be different for everybody, but personally, my experience of it is more that um, there isn't a recipient. Um, there, isn't, there, isn't, there isn't this thing that, that, that receives and has to defend itself against all of the bad things that are done to it, right? There isn't, um, like if somebody, if somebody says something mean about Ted, Um, There isn't a need to feel pain. Um, There may be a decision to respond.
4: Right. And do you feel that lack of need sort of, um, is it a, spectrum with gradations and something you're slowly learning over time. Cause I feel like in that case, yes, totally. Like there are, right. there are so many things now that I have no need to respond to that I had need to respond to two years ago. And often like, I'll notice myself responding to something and then I can remember there's no need to respond to that. So that would be one way of seeing it. But another way would be sort of a constant thing that's always on that was some sort of like binary flip switch of, Oh, there's nothing there. And I certainly haven't had that. I think I've had right. kind of a progressive. There's a the progressive, there's a little less there than I thought <laughs> it's,
2: But how do you, how do you constantly notice that something isn't there?
4: Yeah.
2: Right. Like really the experience of it not being there is just that you don't notice it being there. Yeah. Suddenly suddenly like your experience of self is that you're not experiencing self, you know, and then I, then occasionally it comes up, right. Occasionally there is a context in which self makes sense. And when there's a context in which self makes sense, suddenly you're experiencing self. And then when that context drops, self drops.
4: Yeah, I'm not sure if that's the way I've conceptualized it so far. For me, it's maybe more like I'm always experiencing self, but that self has figured out it doesn't need to feel a lot of these pains and sufferings. But mm-hmm. I still think of it more as a self. So yeah,
2: <laughs> I don't know. I mean, it's 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 really it's really uh, there, there's a reason why they call it ineffable
4: <laughs> because it cannot be effed. Yeah,
2: exactly. <laughs> So, uh, so you were asking about the three characteristics unsatisfactoriness. One of the things that that happens with the dropping of of a strong uh, attachment to self is that the set of things that can be unsatisfactory diminishes significantly, and so um, identifying unsatisfactoriness gets harder because things tend to be satisfactory or not even necessarily satisfactory, but just not unsatisfactory, right? So. Um, For me, like actually this whole thing that happened with Chuladasa in the last couple of weeks has been really good for digging up experiences of unsatisfactoriness. And I've been able to access that uh, quite a few times recently that that when I hadn't been able to access it as much before. Um, I occasionally will go hunting for unsatisfactoriness um, because I know that there's still some there. Uh, and so finding it feels like kind of a, a, a joyful discovery because when you find something, you can you can work with it. Um, so if you're having trouble finding unsatisfactoriness, then that's a thing to experiment with. See if you can figure out wh- where there is still unsatisfactoriness because it probably isn't everywhere anymore.
4: Yeah, and it certainly is not super easy for me to find on the meditation cushion. Like on the meditation cushion... Like either I'm really watching the breath going in and out my nose pretty closely and you know mm-hmm. that feels relaxing and enjoyable and the more I notice it, the more it's fine. And then somehow my mind wanders off to other things, but that doesn't bother me either. And then I come back. That's and- unsatisfactoriness.
2: That's why your mind wandered.
4: Yeah, it doesn't have an... I thought of... Unsat- that's interesting. I thought of unsatisfactoriness as something that would have a negative valence. But to me... I can't perceive any negative valence of the mind wandering and I don't, and like, I don't feel like, Oh, I'm a, <laughs> okay. So if yeah. the mind wanders, then that's. Cause if I would also often... mind... Yeah. If,
2: if the mind wasn't satisfied with remaining on the object, then there had to have been unsatisfactoriness. It was okay. <laughs> right. boredom is an example of unsatisfactoriness. It's not necessarily a negative valence. Gilbert you look like you really want to jump yeah. in. Yeah
1: so um, with noticing these three characteristics um, the level that you're able to notice them is going to depend on you could I'll say the power of your mind or um, how much you've cultivated your uh, how, how powerful how much you've cultivated your mind um, definitely like frame rates in a sense how much you're able to notice even in a you know uh, a given sort of period of time and then also there's yeah there's like the 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 frame rates there's also of course how much of the internal processes you're aware of um yeah how much are you just noticing and so yeah that's why that's always super useful to like okay i'm trying to increase um you know the sensory clarity um, and just what I am knowing um, because yeah so, so sometimes people do jump to like oh I want to like get these three characteristics and they don't realize wait to get the to really understand the three characteristics like you're having to in some sense yeah power up the mind um, and you know at least the the dry insight path <laughs> <laughs> is where you focus almost exclusively on powering up the mind, particularly trying to um, be aware of that in, uh, tuning towards imper- impermanence, right? So like getting those, uh, uh, increasing that sort of frame rates, right? Uh, uh, how close you, you can, can, you can pay attention to, it could be a figure of attention, like something narrow, could be here, could be scanning, um, you know, noting, but you are just increasing that frame rates. And then, yeah, you get it power powerful enough, and then it'll kind of overload <laughs> whatever your uh, your old model, like that whole thing of permanence and stuff starts to completely fall apart, and then you know it's the dry yeah. inside path, and so it's a little bit more rocky. But 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 the, yeah, that that's why it is important. I'm bringing it up, not necessarily really to advocate, advocate. Oh yeah, just just do dry insight. But no, but that is that element that you are that's necessary. I think right for all of these paths, you are also trying to make the mind more powerful in a sense. Yeah, the arising and passing away is is kind of a very very
2: clear experience of of the characteristic of impermanence.
5: Cool. Thank you. That's helpful. Sorry, can I, can I jump in? Um, yeah. Uh, Riff, you said, I think, like, you, you practice TMI, right? So what state would you I,
4: at? Well, it's tricky for me because I feel like, I mean, TMI is certainly the main thing I have done. But over the last seven or eight months, I feel like the practice has become a lot more diffuse. Um, I guess speaking roughly, I would say, like, most practices, I kind of vary between stages four and six. Like I don't do a lot of body scanning anymore. I've basically never had problems with dullness as far as I can tell. Like a couple times when I was really, really sleepy or super underslept, I've had problems with dullness. But for me, I've always tended much more towards agitation. I think I operate at a pretty high energy level. Like I I can wake up at 6 a.m. and like just get on the cushion and not be tired at all. So TMI is often phrased as kind of a balancing act between dullness and agitation. And for me, I've found that like I struggle with adaptation. Uh, I tend towards agitation. I don't tend towards dullness in my practice. Um, So it's usually pretty high energy. And recently, it just feels very relaxing. Like I'll have like a few minutes of something stage sixty, and then I'll be a little bit more like then I'll be like a few minutes of like you know thoughts are coming in, but I notice them pretty quick and just let them go again. And um, so maybe maybe stage six veering into stage seven sometimes because it's also is starting to feel more effortlessness. Like I don't feel like I have to work hard to do that. Like I, I try to up the effort a little bit more to avoid those more stage 40 drops, but I don't feel like I'm working very hard on the cushion. So for, for what
5: you said, I think those are really good. Um, for unsatisfactoriness, like the agitation is like the, the great object to investigate. And, um, the other thing you said, like, um, you see thoughts come and then you just, um, let them go. Like, I think if you try to see like where thoughts come from, that's great practice for no self. You sort of see like okay. thoughts come and go on their own. There's no, oh, wait.
4: yeah, of course they definitely come and go on their own. Yeah.
5: Yeah. Okay. Well then I'd say like you're seeing it relatively clearly then already like the no self aspect. Yeah. And I'll keep yeah. Also the intentions that come up before, um, like any thoughts or anything. Like, I'd say those are pretty good um, places to look for.
4: Thank you.
2: So, um, let's see, I think Laura is definitely next at
3: this point. Um, You go ahead though, Tom. I'm only going to ask this question if no one's got their (laughs) I see your curiosity Ted. It's just a, it's a really overarching question. So it's not directly on meditation practice.
6: Okay. So now I have three questions. One is, is there, are there any practices presented in the finders course that are not available anywhere else? Uh, The second is about the three characteristics. And the third one is what Laura's question is.
2: Uh, All right. So, so um, I don't think that there are any practices in the finders course that aren't presented everywhere else, anywhere else because uh, Jeffrey made up the finders course based on doing a survey of like all of the data that he collected and what worked for people. And he just picked like the top 13 or 14 things that work for people. And those are, those are, that's the protocol. It's basically, a, it's basically like a very slapdash demo, frankly.
6: Uh, right. So but, basically we're but, all already on our finders course, because we're just going from practice to practice until we find one that works.
2: But the thing that was interesting about the finders course is that although uh, I agree with Nate that, that that Jeffrey does tend to ramble a bit, um, I think it was Nate who said that um, that uh, you probably will not find a more focused presentation of the full set of practices anywhere else. And just for that purpose alone, I think it's valuable. Like like if you find a practice in there that you think is cool, first of all, many times Jeffrey just points you at the website right? So Mm -hmm. like he explains the practice, he gives you some details about how to do it, but then he also points you at the website where the authority is. So you're not stuck with just whatever he's telling you. You can also go there. Um, and then there are people who are expert in various practices that you won't get access to. Like there's a woman who's expert in a certain practice, um, that is similar to, to, uh, TM, but not the same. And, uh, she, so she's a fine, she's a finder's course alum and she's, she really knows that practice well. And if you wanted to get, um, instruction on that practice from someone, she would probably be the right person to get that instruction from, but she doesn't teach except to people who are finders course alums. So one of my frustrations about the finder's course is actually that there are a lot of people who are finders Course graduates who I think, people could really benefit from meeting but they don't want to just meet random people because they've got lives. So yeah. like the finders course is like a nice little funnel that keeps out like you know random the people so there's yeah. yeah well it just it just reduces the workload it's not even that the people that would come along wouldn't be good people to talk to it's just there'd be too many of them.
6: Okay, three characteristics. There's emptiness, impermanence, and those I can see those as characteristics of reality. Mm-hmm. unsatisfactoriness seems like a response of a self. There has to be a self for something to be unsatisfactory. There has to be something making a judgment about this is okay or not okay.
2: So is there? Is it required that there be a self for you to get hungry?
6: No, but it's required for the, there to be a self for hungriness to be unacceptable or unsatisfactory. So-
2: So if you, if you have fully realized no self, then necessarily you will soon starve to death.
6: Not necessarily. I can decide to take action on something, even if it's not unsatisfactory. It unsatisfactoriness isn't the only motivator of action.
2: So, so unsatisfactoriness is just a phenomenon. It's not. It doesn't require. I'm asserting. It doesn't require a self. It's just a phenomenon. It's it's you your you have evolved. We have evolved to find things unsatisfactory because if we don't, we die. And so unsatisfactoriness is basically. A, a, it's it's a drive. It's like you know the sex drive or the the drive to uh, you know want comfort or any of you know the drive to want food. It's like any of those things. It's just a drive. Um, and, uh, the problem with unsatisfactoriness is not that it exists. Like it's not, it's not bad that things are impermanent. It's not bad that things are unsatisfactory and it's not bad that things are empty, right? Those aren't bad. They're just facts. So unsatisfactoriness is just a thing but the, the thing that's important to realize about unsatisfactoriness is if, is if you just leave it alone and don't deal with it, it produces suffering as does impermanence, right? So, so, so the natural tendency is for unsatisfactoriness to produce that negative valence that you're talking about, but it doesn't have to. So recognizing it as, a character, as one of the three characteristics doesn't mean getting rid of it. It just means recognizing that it is there and that it has certain effects and that these effects are, are uh, important in producing suffering.
6: Okay, I'll give that some more thought. Thank you. Now, Laura,
2: what's your question? No more stalling.
3: <laughs> okay, okay, okay. Um, right, so basically, how do I explain this? So my meditation experience, um, I started with the Goenka courses, and the first two were phenomenal and did kind of fundamentally change how I uh, perceive the world and how I live in it. Since then, um, I haven't really seemed to make a huge amount of progress, but maybe my expectations have just been quite high. So I'm super interested in the finder's course and um, yeah, I'll send you an email, Ted, about it. The question that I have is something that's been bothering me for a while. So I work in um, conservation in how you know we're messing up the world quite severely, and I I always get this sense that we're not in conservation or climate change, actually hitting fundamentally on what the issue is, and you know to me that's um, how we are stuck in this illusion of self and illusion of competitiveness and materialism, blah blah blah, um, and I kind of always thought that like if only people could fundamentally understand these things then they might not care about all the crap that we care about and therefore the world would be healthier and happier but now i can't help but get this niggly feeling this whole discussion about growing up cleaning up and and if if we do hack our brains to get these insights will we just then be better capitalists right like will we just um fine tune what we already cared about and there's a document that Jeffrey wrote that I read the other day and it and there was one line in it that really hit me and it was something about like people that cared about the environment still cared about it and people that didn't like it didn't change and I just wonder like surely if you realize that you're kind of just this little spark of life and everything else is too wouldn't you then just see a tree as your relative right like or or am I just fundamentally a hippie that like so yeah, there's my mumble-jumble question that, will this help humanity if we if this actually spreads, like a lot of teachers think so? Or will it, yeah. And I guess it is that morality, we need, we can't lose the, the morality that, that the Buddhist traditions often try and keep in there because otherwise maybe that's the, the risk that they see.
2: This is a really um, good and important question. Um, Glad that you brought it up. Um, And I don't think that we actually know the answer for sure. But um, one thing to observe is that people who have had awakenings are more able to be flexible about what's going on in their life. Seems like. Um, So so if if, if things are basically okay, then when stuff is going away that you don't want it to, you're more likely to just be with that and be willing to try to do something about it um, rather than uh, trying to ignore it. So um, one of the things, I I mean, I've been, so I'm kind of in the same place that you are, right? I'm, I'm kind of, you know, Temporarily, a bit of a hippie and and uh uh definitely have some desire to save the world and stuff like that um and so I, I think about this a lot and um i think that that awakening as a way to like if if you were going to acquire something like you know so we have this tendency to want to acquire things you know to to like hoard stuff maybe um if we, if, if we have a tendency to want to acquire things, it's probably good that the things we want to acquire are things that are environmentally neutral, like awakening. Like, you know, if, if, if awakening could be a desire object, isn't that a better desire object than a, a, an SUV? Um, so in that sense, it's good, I think. Um, I think that the additional flexibility that people have with awakening can be good, um, people can also go kind of off the off the deep end though with awakening and um, that is a very real risk and i I think that um, one of the problems that that is endemic in the in the world of people who are interested in awakening is this belief that people who awaken are somehow magic ponies afterwards, and you know suddenly they're like you know completely inerrant they can't make mistakes they are well-motivated in every way. This is not the case. People come to awakening with baggage. And what Jeffrey was saying, I think is quite accurate. People come to awakening with beliefs. So those beliefs do not go away simply because they had an awakening. You know, if you're, if you're a heavy cigarette smoker before you awaken, um, you're not going to just automatically stop smoking. You might decide to stop smoking. And if you do decide to stop smoking, it'll probably be a hell of a lot easier than it would have been before your awakening. But You also might not decide to stop smoking because you just don't care. And so, and I think this is true of, of, of everything. Like, you know, maybe, so I, I work for my job involves flying out to California multiple times a year. It involves flying. Like I'm going to fly to Singapore in in November. If you look at my carbon footprint, that's not so good. On the other hand, you know, we generally, we, we generate about 12 kilowatts. When, when the sun's shining and that goes into our car. And so who knows? But the point is, like like I have not become magically wise about my, my carbon footprint just because I had some kind of awakening. Like, you know, it, that, that's not. But um, I am spending a lot of time thinking about the problem, probably uh, thinking about the problem in ways that I think are more constructive. Um, than the way I used to think about it. Like the idea of getting into to, uh, fights with people about it is no longer appealing to me. Like if somebody, if I'm on Twitter and I say something and somebody somebody who's a, a, a you know global warming conspiracy theorist comes back to me and says something ridiculous, my response is to engage them in a conversation and ask them why they think that, not to get angry at them. You know, I think that if a lot of us were able to do that, because if you look at the people on Twitter, most of them are very clearly aren't able to do that. Like It's just not even an option for them. When somebody says something like that, the, the, the necessary response is to fight them. And I think that if, if awakening has the ability to do anything, it has the ability to let us do a better job of thinking together. And so if the more people who are awakened, perhaps... The more likely it is that we as uh, a world culture will be able to actually think our way out of this problem and not just keep. Yeah, I've, I want to talk after you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm just rambling, so go ahead and talk.
4: <laughs> yeah, I guess I might push back on that point in particular because I could easily, I mean, you know, complex systems are complex. There's so many nonlinearities, right? So, for instance, you could imagine like there was someone who was actually really good at fighting, right, and was not aware, but, like, through their cogent arguments, which were deeply emotional and, like, suffering, they actually, like, engaged in marches or political actions or fought to change rules. And, um, you know, maybe that did more good than if they themselves were aware and were awake and stopped suffering, but just said, wow, like, I can't really fight anymore. All I can do is, like, tell people gently that you know I don't agree with them and that they're irrational and I think you do see that as a phenomenon, right like I think often when people get awakened especially at first or even when they start to go in that direction you know they do go through a period of retreating more from the world like I know I went through that period Um, and even now I feel like there's some things I would have had the stomach for before but I didn't have in that I don't have now uh, because it just seems so um, obviously pointless but when when I look at what changes the world I think lots of things that I now think are obviously pointless in some emotional sense, you know, do change the world in a physical sense. And so, I'm not I'm not sure that the things that save our environment won't come from like obviously pointless unself-aware people yelling at each other. <laughs> um, I'm just not sure.
2: <laughs> well, I mean, you know, one question to ask yourself is how well has that worked so far? The answer is that it's actually been a, an abject failure, right? Like if you look at Greta Thunberg, right? Like, see, she's somebody that I really, I really admire. I mean, she's like, what is she, like 13 or 15 years old or something? I don't even know how She's she's basically a kid. And her approach is not to yell at people. Her approach is to talk about this stuff seriously and openly and, and, you know, patiently. And if you look at um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, people talk about how, how, uh, how much of a, like a, you know, like pe- people who don't like her talk about how much of a demagogue she is and stuff like that. But the reality is if you actually listen to her talk, she's always talking about things in very personal terms in ways that people can relate to. Um, and she's she's not, she doesn't seem to be interested in getting into fights with people. Like she doesn't, you know, she'll, she'll cooperate with anybody who wants to do something that she wants to do. It doesn't matter whether she agrees with them on everything or not. Yeah. And... I think that people like AOC and people like Greta Thunberg are the ones who are going to change the world. And I think that the people who go around trying to create tribal division and beating people up because they're wrong, always fail. I mean, this, this is like we've seen this over and over and over again. Like I, you know, so I'm an old guy. I have gray hair. You know, I, I, was, I was around briefly in the 60s. Um, not the whole 60s, but, but you yeah. know, so I know all of those people and all those people were idealists, too. And they all wanted to change the world, too. And look at what they've accomplished. The world is a much, I mean, there are things that are better, but, but yeah. our political system is much worse. Uh, so many things are worse. So um, I think having good intentions and not having an awakened attitude is actually pretty harm- potentially pretty harmful. And I think that we're seeing the results of that in the world. So I actually am I'm pretty optimistic about awakening as a way to get people to, to stop uselessly fighting and start cooperating in the ways that they can. But, you know, I could be wrong. Um, it's not like I'm super wise or anything. I'm just like, you know, some guy. But that's just what I've observed. You know, I I've, for example, I found that my ability to actually convince people of things is much, much better now than it used to be because um, I'm more able to not get into stupid arguments with them. I mean, I'm, I'm not, I still do get into stupid arguments with them, don't get me wrong, but it happens a lot less than it used to. And as a consequence, I'm more effective. And I, I, I think that that's a real thing, but I could be wrong. So Laura, you actually started with a different question, which I immediately forgot because your other question is like one of my hobby horses so what's what was your first question
3: um i think that was my main question i just wanted to say about finders that um it it sounds really interesting because um and thank you for your answer to my second question which is just something always running in my head um and you're right like there's no real answer to it but i think certainly if people stop fighting so much to nearly defend their own ego that they don't realize isn't even theirs somehow, that it's just this, you know, ghost in the machine that they're fighting for, then of course we would progress further. But it's how how do you get those people that are so embedded in that mindset to sort of come to that realization, which is a whole other question that we don't need to go into. But thank you for your answer. Um, No, I didn't have a first question. I'm just... I'm still like from the first question from the reason why I joined this group about how my mind is just still um, very distracted and I think it's partly because my whole career I've, I've started to realize that like my whole career is based on my mind and it working well and so I'm very attached to whatever it comes up with because sometimes it comes up with good ideas that helps my job. So I think there's like a weird thing in my head that's always listening to my thoughts, even though the vast majority of them are useless and repetitive and very mundane. So, but I think the, yeah, I think the finders course would be good because for it's been like eight months now doing the TMI method. And, it, and if you were to draw a graph, it would still be like super not, clear progress right yeah
2: one thing about this these methods is like you know it may be that that if we practice tmi perfectly it would work for us but for whatever reason the way that we're practicing it isn't working and it's difficult to figure out what's wrong with the way we're practicing it one of the reasons why i'm so obsessed with talking with people about their practice is because i feel like i can often see things that they can't see mm-hmm. and so you know Uh, So that's useful, but but one of the nice things about TMI is basically you just get to try like a bunch of stuff. And so inevitably, like one of the things will be something that you really get and maybe that's why it works. Maybe that's why one method works for somebody and another method doesn't. I don't know. Mm
3: -hmm. But thanks. Sure.
2: Yeah. Uh, Okay. Uh, Anybody else got anything
4: I guess I wanted to say about the bigger question about kind of environmentalism, I had another thing to say, which is that, I mean, I actually think there's really interesting connections between that and like sort of the recent Dawson situation and, you know, sort of, that's some evidence that like awakening doesn't directly guarantee morality. And that I think that, you know, asking people to focus on morality is, um, like I could imagine, I don't feel like I would live in this world, but like I could imagine a world in which everyone was awakened, but we just felt like, you know, the only thing that was valuable was life right now and it was okay to like use up the world for future generations and not give them anything because they don't exist anyways and we don't exist anyways so may as well enjoy stuff now like that's probably a coherent philosophy that could work and I I think that probably awakening is at some logical level maybe independent of that choice so I think I think we still have to focus on morality training
2: yeah
4: that's the extreme of non-existence yeah. You know, you think about the middle way
2: as being between the two extremes. There's the extreme of of existence and the extreme of non-existence, and that's the extreme of non-existence. The, the extreme of of thinking that if if things don't exist truly, then they don't exist at all, and therefore there's no meaning and there's no, you know, there's no reason to to not just like spew as much carbon as you want because it doesn't matter. But yeah, I mean. You know, the thing is, the other question to ask is like, well, so what happens if we continue the way we're going right now? And I think the answer to that is pretty obvious. Might as well try something. This seems like something to try.
3: And I I just can't help but think that um, even if all humans awakened, right, wouldn't we have more compassion for other species that would inevitably suffer if we were to? carry on on the current like I just feel like and maybe it's naive again but that we do have this fundamental kind of compassion but we it's it's not accessible to a lot of people because we have trauma or we have um consumerism or we just have lives that keep us so busy with our own things that we that we think are the big problems and you know our own self-absorption that we, we can't access it and so if we did get a little bit more access to that, then inevitably we might end up a bit kinder. But again, it's just a feeling that I have. It's not based on actually knowing people that have been awakened or, you know. um,
2: Yeah, I mean, if if you look at if you look at how our culture functions right now, you look at things like why is it that prescription drug prices have gone up so much? It's because um, people want high yield investments. Right why do people want high yield investments? Because they're afraid that things are collapsing and they wanna make sure that they are able to live off of their savings, which might not be as much as they would have preferred. So like a lot of the problems that we have in the world are actually driven by this fear of, of scarcity. And so reducing people's overall level of fear could have a significant impact on that. I mean, fossil fuels, 10 trillion dollars of stranded assets, right? Think about how frightening that is for somebody who's got a lot of their assets in fossil fuels. And and, even if they take some of their assets out, it's not like there are a lot of investment vehicles that have high rates of return. So take your investments out of fossil fuels, where's the high rate of return going to come from? That's... A lot of the problems we have in the world, I think, are really very much driven by by this fear, um, and figuring out how to fix that, even if the way we fix it is just just by giving less of a shit about consequences, frankly, that might help. Ironically, because of course, you know, we're not giving a shit about the consequences that are that are big. We're just giving a shit about the consequences that have to do with our investment portfolio right now.
4: Oops. So. Yeah, I just, um, I mean, it's really interesting because like, I found your earlier point about like awakening, um, you know, and avoiding fighting to be really, really compelling. And I, I want to say that actually it was a useful thing to chew on, right? I mean, I am, I don't really agree with your analysis of why drug prices are so high. So it's interesting to see how you've constructed this whole story about that of being fear. I mean, I think people have wanted high investment, you know, returns forever, yeah. I think that I think the drug prices are high because you know we have so much bureaucracy and most drugs fail and clinical trials cost a billion dollars and so you need to, you know, you need to charge a lot to make a decent return and keep the companies in business and like like certainly I don't. It's a really complex system, but I wouldn't I wouldn't have thought to to bring it back to fear and think that was really what it was about. It's interesting to hear that.
2: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, just you know, to, to briefly address the point about drug prices. I mean, that doesn't really explain why suddenly the price of, um, uh, you know, those, those uh, those nephrine, like why did that suddenly go up to 600 bucks a shot? It's not because, right? It's not because new research needed to
4: be done. Certainly not in that case. Somebody
2: wanted ROI. Yeah.
4: That's yeah, all. I agree somebody wanted ROI, and you know, we have a system that allows them to get it. But I don't think that's actually super new. I don't think it's a very recent thing.
2: No, no, it, it isn't new. But, but the thing is that, that it hasn't yet driven us up against the wall, but it's starting to get really close. Yeah. And also, you know, our culture is a lot less um, sort of uh, moralistic than it used to be, or moral than it used to be. Um, I think, you know, not to say that, that we have become, you know, completely immoral, but, but uh, a lot of the sort of moral standards that, that would have applied 100 years ago don't apply as strongly now. And uh, so, yeah, you see things happen that, that you wouldn't have seen as much, maybe. I mean, of course, you, see, you also see things like, you know, 200 years ago, slavery, right? Less than 200 yeah. years ago. So it's not like, and, it's
4: not- and, and, and in some parts of the world still today. But, um,
2: <laughs> yeah, and, and, you know, you can also argue that, that some of the, for example, the way that, the way that organizations that, that pay really low wages operate is essentially a way to accomplish slavery without actually breaking the law. So, but don't get me started on my socialist rants. No, we, we better not. you <laughs> Be here all day.
3: <laughs> this, this is why I knew this question would derail things. <laughs>
2: yeah.
4: Well, yeah. But it well, seems like
3: they're.
4: But, yeah. Although it seems like there is agreement that like awakening doesn't automatically imply morality, but that maybe it helps.
5: <laughs> yeah. I uh, think- well, I'm going to give my, sorry. No, go ahead, Nate. I, I'm just gonna. I, I've, I've been thinking about it too, since a long time ago. And um, I think uh, my conclusion, which could be wrong is like, I think the mind likes yes and no answers, black and white answers. I think the truth probably is like somewhere in between, like some people when they awaken, they might become, um, like much more compassionate and kind of person some people might not I don't know what the breakdown is but um, it's, it's, it would be interesting to find out
2: new topic for research all right I actually need to, to say goodbye because um, I have uh, a thing to go to soon So uh,
4: have a great day thank you
2: you too this has been a great discussion and uh, hopefully I'll see a bunch of you next week Yeah. Thanks,
4: everyone. Thank you. Bye-bye.